You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. So Ben, today is March 1st, which is going to be, or at least promises to be, a fairly big month in the world of MMA, primarily in the UFC, where due to a quirk of scheduling, we are supposed to get both UFC 259 and UFC 260. So coming up this Saturday from the Apex, you're going to get the triple championship bill here with Jan Blagovitz versus Israel Adesanya, Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson, and Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling. And coming up at the end of the month, we are scheduled to get UFC 260, which is headlined, of course, by the rematch between Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou, as well as a featherweight title fight between Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega. That is to say nothing, by the way, of this March 13th event, which is going to be headlined now by Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad. So don't you forget the name. I would never, ever forget the name. So we got a bunch of big fights coming up this month, man. If, if I had to put you on the spot with giving you zero time to prepare and ask you which one of these fights, including five title fights this month, you're looking forward to most, what would you say? Oh, man. So first of all, what do we need to sacrifice to the MMA gods to make sure that we get all five? I mean, right now, getting all five title fights would be... I don't want to say unprecedented, but uh, I don't even want to say unexpected, but it might be, uh, I, I don't know, I don't even know what the odds are. I don't know if the odds would come down on us losing one of these things, given that that it seems like every week we drop a fight or two due to uh, COVID-19 protocols and, and things like that. But like, I guess we keep our fingers crossed and uh, and maybe we get all five. I don't know. Yeah, because especially if I start to look at it as which one do I do I most want us not to lose? Uh, on one hand, Izzy Adesanya and Yanni Blackjacks. That's a fight I want to see. Stylistically, interesting to see Israel Adesanya go up a weight class, see how he deals with the legendary Polish power, see if the, the hangman's rope proves once again to be a nearly unbeatable talisman in uh, MMA history. But also, there's another part of me that goes, even though I think I know how Miosic and Ganu is going to go, and if you ask me right now, I'd say a lot like the first one. There's another part of me that says, but we need to do it and get past that and move on to the next thing so that the heavyweight division can stop this kind of indefinite holding pattern yeah. that it's been in. We need we need to get to a point, and it won't even be right after this fight. It'll be a, you know after this fight and then hopefully after the next one where the heavyweight business can once again the heavyweight division can once again start to consider new business. And so I feel like at different levels of anticipation there. It's also just kind of weird to me when you look at the stacked fight card that we have this weekend. This is the one where the USC is really earning that pay-per-view money. 
you know, you look at the full card and you go, okay, this this is a good value proposition. This is not the kind that I just want to sit back and wait for highlights via Twitter. It's actually a good offering here for UFC 259. And yet it does seem like now that we're back at the apex, done with the Fight Island stuff, when the government of Abu Dhabi is paying for all the, the COVID bubble stuff, the approach is, eh, let's hope for the best. Right. We're going to lose one or two every week. And let's just hope that it's not one or two that matters. Yeah, I, I agree with you that Adesanya versus Blagovich, which we will talk about a lot more on this show, obviously a veritable super fight. So it would hurt to lose that one. Uh, but I agree with you that I feel like the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou is the one we got to get done. We got to get it on the books and we got to get it over with so that we can get back to some semblance of forward momentum in the heavyweight division, figure out what's going on with John Jones, figure out what's going on with Derek Lewis, figure out what's going on with Cyril Gaon, who defeated the biggie boy, Jarzino Rosenstrike on Saturday, which we'll talk about later in the show. So it would really, really hurt to lose that one. So here's what I'm saying. You go out, maybe today, after we're done recording this, you go out and you pick up a goat. Okay. Bring the goat home. We, are, we, are we talking live animal goat or Artem Lobov? No, no, no. Uh, actual physical, literal goat. Okay. Which okay. here in Montana, I'm not seeing as an obstacle. You're going to be able to go out, pick I mean, up a goat on any street corner. I'll just go ask one of my neighbors. Somebody on the street doesn't have a goat. I miss my guess. Yeah. Uh, bring the goat home. Perform some manner of ritualistic sacrifice, a bloodletting. Maybe there's a pentagram involved, some candles, altars talismans as you mentioned whatever you got to do pillar assault i don't know get it done so that the mma gods are sated so we can get through this month with five title fights how about i'll i'll douse the goat in monster energy drink and then hit it on the head with alistair overeem's giant wooden hammer i love it that ought to do it i, lo- right? I love the way you're thinking I think we're going to be solid gold here remember you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper this show drops every monday for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. But make no mistake, Ben Folks and I are going to be here all week over at the Patreon page. And it's an exciting time right now at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, because not only are we going to be doing all of our normal MMA content over there this week, including the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, and the Friday power hour. But Ben, it is the beginning of Monster Movie Month for the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon Movie Club. And this week, we kick it off with a classic, The Thing, for Monster yeah. Movie Club. I'm excited. The, th- the Thing won just a runaway winner in voting against the host. I believe like 75% to 25%. It was an insane oh. ass kicking. I frankly did not expect it to be quite that lopsided, not to let people behind the curtain too much in terms of how voting typically goes. Uh, maybe not just on our Patreon, but across the internet. But the new, the newer movie generally enjoys an advantage, let's just say. So I thought that the host was going to be competitive out there with The Thing. The Thing just steamrolled it, man. Just absolutely trucked it. Uh, this thing was a 10-8 round all the way across the board. So we're going to be watching The Thing, a classic, regarded as perhaps the greatest monster movie of all time, this week on the, uh, on the Co-Main Event Podcast Movie Club. Well, I'm excited. We had a good time with Time Travel Movie Club last month, especially, as people will know, the first episode in the series for the new Movie Club month. It's important because that's where we have to 
start to ask ourselves what we even mean by monster movie. I got so into time travel movie club month. You know what I did over the weekend? Oh, God. Well, I, I know you got some time to kill, no pun intended. So what did you do? I watched Los Crono Criminas, mm. Time Crimes. Yeah. Uh, a loser in the vote against Primer. People had accused me of kind of stacking the deck to make sure that we got to watch Primer. I still think Primer's worth watching. Man, Time Crimes, though, coming to you straight out of Spain, that one will, will twist the mind into some pretzels as well. Okay, good to know. So, you know, if you want to join the team over at Co-Main Event uh, Podcast or Patreon.com slash Co-Main Event, you can join up. Three handy tiers of patronage that you can join. Uh, ben Folks is probably going to end up watching all the movies anyway, but this week... Yep. We're going to discuss the thing. Also, if you really want to support the team, go on out and buy my newest novel, The Blaze. It's a mystery. It's a thriller. I think you're going to like it. It's available wherever books are sold. Uh, if you do read it and you do enjoy it, remember to leave me a review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. You can buy, rate, and review The Blaze today wherever is best for you. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but don't forget, you can also run out and grab a CME logo t-shirt right now over at CottonBureau.com. We got those for sale. We got other merch over there. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts. We got Dundasso t-shirts. Those are always available all the time whenever you want them on demand over there at CottonBureau.com. That also helps keep the show ad-free and the discourse unfettered. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash. That's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them, on the show you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or over at soundcloud.com slash foreign cash and again that's c-a-c-h-e in cash three rounds as usual this week in the co-made event podcast and round number one cyril gone played it smart this weekend to nab a victory over the biggie boy question is was that smart and in round number two, Israel Adesanya moves up to light heavyweight, gunning for the title, but he's got the legendary Polish power and Yanni Blackjack's suicide rope standing in his way. I call it a push. And in round number three, we'll talk about UFC 259's other two title fights as Amanda Nunes defends against Megan Anderson and Peter Yan puts the gold on the line against Aljamain Sterling. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the hamburger seal. Uh, okay. I don't know if that's a friend or an acquaintance of the cheeseburger walrus, our old friend. Perhaps a perhaps a hated rival. Could be. Cheeseburger walrus. Could be. Hard to know. Anyway, the hamburger seal writes, what was the worst part of the Reebok deal other than how it screwed all the athletes financially? And would what would you like to see? from the Venom era. So Ben, I tweeted this out this morning, but as I said at the top of the show, here we are, March 1st. Allegedly, see, I should have put this in my tweet. Allegedly, this is the last month of the Reebok outfitting exclusive apparel deal with the UFC. Venom allegedly scheduled to take over supplying gear to the athletes to wear during their fights in April. Now I say allegedly so many times and with such emphasis, because since the announcement of this thing last summer, we have publicly heard almost nothing about yeah. what the Venom deal will look like, how it will affect the fighters, whether or not there will be a change in outfitting pay for the athletes, uh, if Venom will even launch like a uh, an exclusive line of gears only for UFC fighters, or if you just will be able to pick what you wear 
from Venom, Venom's existing library of fight gear. We don't know. We don't know anything about this deal. And from the original Mark Ramondi story in ESPN last year, he said, quote, the deal is shorter and less lucrative than the Reebok deal. So as far as we know, man, this thing could be a, a six-month stopgap. We have no idea. We don't know anything about the Venom deal. And yet here we are, 30 days, allegedly, from when this thing is supposed to kick off. I guess I will ask you first, do you think this thing is happening on schedule? And if so, what do you think, what do you expect from, from Venom taking over the uh, the in-cage gear uh, from Reebok, who's been doing it for, for a lot of years now? Yeah, you're right that it's weird. That we haven't heard. Remember the Reebok deal? We had a whole rollout, a huge presentation. Launch. Ronda Rousey yeah. was there. Conor McGregor was there. It was uh, it was one of the biggest uh, farces in the history of the sport. <laughs> it was terrible. They screwed it up so many different ways. And maybe that's why we're not. Maybe if they figure, hey man, we'll keep this Venom thing quiet. Uh, we won't have another absolute disaster like we had at the launch of the Reebok deal. Yeah, but it does make I, – I, and there are a lot of reasons why, I guess, right now you could get away with saying, like, you know, we're not doing a big press event in New York City where we gather everybody together to show them how we misspelled flexibility. Uh, COVID stuff makes it so that we're just not doing unnecessary gatherings. So, fine. We'll just – they'll just show up one day maybe and be wearing venom. It's weird, though. It's weird that – and some of it, I guess – it was such a huge change to go from no outfitting policy other than don't let Dennis Holman go out there and some training mask speedos to suddenly now everybody's going to have to wear the same, like choose from the same clothing maker's apparel. And especially right off the bat, there won't be that many choices. And also that for a lot of people, a huge source of their revenue just suddenly went away and everybody had to readjust to that. So there was a lot of lead up. Felt like we heard a lot of different things and there was just more investigation going on from us in the media and ask questions from fans being like, what is it actually going to look like? Maybe once we've seen it, we feel like oh, it won't be too big a change. It'll be like the Reebok stuff, only it'll say Venom and who knows, maybe it'll even be better. Kind of hard to imagine how many, how much worse it could really get. As for the question that the hamburger seal asked here about what was the worst part other than how it screwed all the athletes financially, I would say there's a little asterisk on that question. It didn't screw them all equally. Some got really badly screwed. Some were making like 300 grand in sponsorships per fight. And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, here's your 20 grand. Thanks for coming. And other people were going like, uh, you know, I was kind of, I wasn't making big sponsorship money and I was getting tired of trying to chase down sponsors and handle all that stuff anyway. So I'll take my guaranteed five grand from Reebok and not have to think about it. Thank you very much. To me, though, still the worst part about it is the way that it just sucked individuality out of this sport. Yeah. And this is a sport that needs individuality. It's an individual sport. You're selling personalities out there as much as you're selling the actual fights themselves. You need us to care about this person. Here's who he is, or who she is. Here's their whole deal. And there's not that many opportunities to do that when the roster is so crowded anyway. And you get a few things. You get what you look like when you walk out the curtain and you get kind of the music you pick to walk out the curtain too. We don't always even get to hear the music anymore. And if everybody's walking out in either black with white Reebok shorts or white with black Reebok shorts, you take a lot away from us to 
decide how we feel about this person and invest in them emotionally, which is what you're ultimately selling. That's that's what your product is. Yeah. Is us caring about who the hell these people are and what happens to them. Yeah. I continue to maintain that I I bet that Reebok was surprised at how the vitriol and the level of disdain that MMA fans showed right out the gate from the from the word go for Reebok because if you rewind to back when uh the Reebok deal first got underway Reebok it wasn't too long before that that Reebok had basically come in and all but cornered the market in the CrossFit game they had become the official outfitter of of CrossFit uh you know was basically supplying all of the uh <coughs> all of the uh uh the athletes for the CrossFit games, et cetera, et cetera. I think that they looked at MMA as a, as a comparable niche sport. And they were like, okay, we're going to come into this other sport, be welcomed with open arms. And it's going to be just like CrossFit. Everybody's going to love our shit and it's going to be great. And maybe for that reason, they didn't put top people on the initial launch and kind of, you know, bungled certain parts of it. And immediately as MMA fans in this industry are want to do, we had an absolute field day with it. And of course, over the lifetime of the deal, we all did kind of grow accustomed to the look in the cage, to what Reebok was doing, but we never fully warmed up. Yeah, we never actually liked it. Right. We, we reached a, like, a, like a begrudging acceptance of it. If I had to guess, I would say Reebok was probably surprised by that reception. And I think that there is some reason for optimism that things will be better for Venom, at least in terms of like the look and feel and maybe the performance inside the cage, just because Venom is a respected combat sports apparel brand to begin with. They've been doing this for a while. They're not going to have to jump in starting at zero the way Reebok did. They're going to, you know, already have some expertise, already have uh, some knowledge, some institutional knowledge and, and how, of how the sport works, et cetera, et cetera. Am I wrong, though, to think... And maybe this is, I don't want to want to sound like a cynic. I don't want to, you know, put the kibosh on this thing before it happens. But you and I have been around the sport a long time. Typically, when things are this quiet, when the UFC has provided us with zero information over the last almost a year now since the announcement of this thing, am I wrong to think that the news that comes out, particularly in terms of the money and what people are getting paid, am I wrong to think that there's a good chance that that news is not going to be good? Because they don't seem super excited about telling us what it is. Yeah. Well, and Venom, while I agree with you, there's reason to hope that they will be better received in this space just because they have a history. They're a sort of combat sports specific brand. People if you let fighters have their own choice of whatever they want to wear out there, some of them would end up wearing Venom shorts anyway. Yeah. They already were before the Reebok deal. So there, there is hope in that regard. But it, it must be said that is a step down for the UFC to go sure. from Reebok, you know, big, well-known, huge brand, to Venom, a very sports-specific brand. And then we're told, shorter deal, less lucrative it kind of makes it seem like Reebok jumped in here and said, all right, the UFC wants to do this outfitting deal. We'll do it. And then went, oh, no, this was a mistake. We're, we want out as soon as we can. And everybody else looked at it and thought, we don't exactly want in. We saw how that went. And so then you're kind of 
taking what you can get. I mean, it's still to me the most hilarious part of the the changeover from Reebok to Venom has been Dana White being asked, "Is it true that your apparel, your new apparel sponsor, is going to be one of the following?" And it was like Nike, Under Armour, and Venom. Yeah, and he was, was like, "That was when he was on the the Schmo show." The Schmo <laughs> asked him a great moment, by the way, an unintentional comedy in this sport when the Schmo asked him if it was one of those three companies, and Dana White was like, "Wait, which three? And the Schmo had to repeat him, and then Dana White said, yeah, it's one of those three. And I immediately thought to myself, well, shit, man, if it was Nike, you probably wouldn't have to ask him to repeat the list. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's when we knew. And so, yeah, it it will be interesting to see what we do. I mean, maybe we're just thinking, hey, March, we got a whole bunch of big fights. We're not worried about this apparel deal thing. Let Reebok get their money's worth out of the last month of it. But also, if we just show up and everybody's just wearing like just basic ass Venom shorts that they they could have bought online off the, the Venom online store, we'll go. All right, we we have definitely taken a step back in terms of how big a deal we're making this out to be. Because as you recall, when we first heard about the Reebok thing and everybody was like, "Oh, you're screwing fighters on money and it all looks boring," and but it was like, "No, this is going to make the sport professional." Yeah, we're going to look professional now. God damn it, we're not going to be out here messing around in your silly little costumes. We're, we're all professional, and it's going to bring the sport to new heights. That was the sales pitch, and not sure that happened. Yeah. I guess we should note Reebok's still going to be handling footwear for the UFC, uh, which is a weird place to be in a, in a sport where the people don't wear shoes. Uh, and the UFC also landed this recent merchandising deal with Zappos that they're apparently going to handle. I guess you would call it lifestyle apparel, because it's not going to be the stuff that people actually wear in the cage, but... Uh, you know, the UFC here having diversified a little bit just in terms of who's going to be doing what for them. Can't wait for Reebok to continue on with that lucrative slides uh, spot where they make the sandals that everyone wears out to the weigh-ins. Next yeah. question this week comes to us from Steven Sprang over on Patreon. He writes, would you consider Jimmy Rivera the epitome of a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest? Seriously, though, what do you think of the suggestion made by the commentators that the calf kick be made illegal? It seems to be showing up in almost every fight now, and there doesn't seem to be any great way of stopping it. Uh, so, Okay, wait, when we say the suggestion from the commentators that it yeah, be made illegal, like, that felt like just some guys saying some stuff. Some fighters that have been kicked in the leg before in Michael Bisming and Paul Felder kind of joking with each other that like, hey, this that really hurts. Maybe they ought to uh, think about banning it. Maybe they ought to think about making it illegal. I don't think uh, Felder and Bisping were serious about that. Uh, yeah. On Saturday night. Although it was one of those things like yeah, years ago, I started saying dude as a joke because I thought it was stupid that other people said dude. So I started saying dude to kind of like mock people who actually said dude. Fast forward to 2021. I basically cannot stop, stop saying the word dude. I say dude all the time. And this between Bisping and, and Felder, this exchange kind of started out as one of those things that sounded like a joke. And then by the end of it, maybe we had started to think that's not a bad idea, especially when you consider the idea that, or the notion that these calf kicks, low calf kicks can cause compartment syndrome, a potentially uh, serious medical complication there if you if you take too many of the calf kicks. We, it's professional cage fighting. A lot of stuff that we're doing to each other can result in serious bodily injury on purpose. Like, done to provoke that outcome you know so i don't i get it like it did seem a little bit like they're just kind of talking and 
but it's also like maybe like suggesting a three-way to your girlfriend and that I was joking unless you're going right. to do it kind of thing. But, I, you know, I remember when you did that story about the rise of the calf kick and somebody, one of the coaches saying, and these days it almost feels like in some fights, it's just a contest to see who can establish that first yeah. and who can make that start to pay off for them first. At the same time, isn't that supposed to be what we like about this sport? Is that the the range of techniques available to you and the idea that people can still come up with new stuff and new ways of doing that and somebody comes up with a thing, it works really well, other people are going to respond to it. I don't, I think the calf kick is probably here to stay as a technique, but... So is like a lot of others. It's not like like imagine if like Pedro Hizo was out there chopping at people's thighs with the the leg kicks, and people were like, "This is too much, man. This is uh, we don't want to see guys limping around here. You could really seriously hurt somebody's leg, and like people, you you can you can fracture your leg that way. And it's like, yeah, but that's that's the game, man. Like that's what you signed up for with this thing. You got to learn how to deal with the calf kicks. We can't just be like, okay, look, that was too effective, and we're gonna ban it. Plus, man, we have such a hard time enforcing a rule as simple as don't kick each other in the balls. Like that one, we can't totally grasp. And that's pretty clear. Like now we're going to be like, you can't kick somebody between the knee and the ankle. And like it, it's completely unworkable to even think about how you go about le- like banning that technique from the sport. And I just think philosophically... I don't know how you'd feel good about right. it. The calf kick is a thing that happens. Everybody got to deal with it. If you go in there and somebody is kicking the shit out of your calf and it affects you in the fight, I think the question should be, how are you not prepared to be kicked in the calf at this point? Or like, how are you not prepared to deal with that? Because it's not a new thing at this point anymore. Everybody's seen it. You know that that's a very real possibility, especially if you're dealing with somebody who has a good kicking game, like that that's going to be a thing that they target. You got to have an answer for that. I don't know. It, the The whole conversation just seems, frankly, silly to me. Yeah, and like, it's, if we can learn from history, the same thing will likely happen with the calf kick as has happened with other uh, devastating moves in the sport. Is that people are going to learn either how to avoid it or how to counter it. Uh, although it, it was, it was painful to watch Jimmy Rivera deal with this calf kick over the course of fifteen minutes in his fight against Pedro Munoz because he had been kicked. I think they said the official stats. Were thirteen times in the first round he'd been kicked in the in the calf, which is uh, that's bad, man. You're not going to be able to withstand that for very long. And frankly, like kind of a testament to Jimmy Rivera that he made it through this thing, uh, made it yeah. through all fifteen minutes and the end of it. Uh, uh, he's still dangerous. He's still out there throwing hard shots to the to the head of of Pedro Munoz, who obviously didn't win the decision. Uh, quite rightly, Pedro Munoz walks away with the, the victory here, but like uh, kind of impressive just to see Jimmy Rivera not only still standing, but still throwing heavy punches with bad intentions, you know, down the stretch at the end of this thing. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. We got time for maybe one or two more. We'll do this one from Faraz from Toronto in the Montana de la Rosa versus Maria Buena Silva fight this weekend. Silva received a point deduction for a pretty blatant fence grab during a takedown attempt from de la Rosa. Now I'm definitely happy to see the rules actually being enforced for once in this crazy, beautiful sport that we love, but I was also a little conflicted. Uh, in this case, the fence grab seemed quite reactionary with Silva, even acknowledging her error almost immediately. I hesitate to say that she should have gotten a warning first because we all know that shit does nothing for nobody, but a full point deduction seemed kind of harsh. FYI, 
Uh, I was a little late turn tuning in, so I don't know if Silva had been warned for this earlier. Uh, but anyway, uh, it got me thinking. In the first case of a fence grab during a takedown, they stop the action and automatically give top position to the person doing the taking down. So in this case, De La Rosa would have uh, have top position and we start the action again. And then any further fence grabs are an automatic point deduction. Would love to hear your thoughts on this matter. Uh, it was pretty early in the fight. So it wasn't as though you could really have a meaningful warning for Mario Bueno Silva, who ends up, uh, you know, finishing in a draw here with Montana De La Rosa. So this point deduction, pretty big deal. Uh, but she did right before that, she kind of braced her hand against the, the cage post right before the takedown. Uh, so it was almost like two instances of, of fence grabbing right in a row. And of course the second one did seem like it resulted in foiling the takedown attempt, at least temporarily, uh, by De La Rosa. And I think the way the rule is written, you kind of have to step in and, and deduct a point for that at this point. Although I agree it was like, uh, you know, it happened so early in the fight, the fight ends up in a draw. Uh, it's hard not to, at least in retrospect, acknowledge how, how much of a role that played in the outcome of the fight. I mean, you know, however, I guess you could, you know, you can break it down a couple of different ways. Like in football, you can get called for a hold, even though it might be perfectly reactionary or perfectly instinctive for you to like reach out and grab a guy by the jersey if he's going to beat you around the corner and go sack the quarterback. Still a penalty, regardless of whether or not yeah. you meant to do it or, you know, it was an instinctual thing or what. The idea of just going ahead and putting them in a position is kind of interesting. I guess then, though, you end up leaving a lot to referee discretion because just putting them in top position could mean a lot of different things. I, I guess you were asking for the referee to look at the takedown attempt that was thwarted by a fence grab and go, where do you think they would have ended up if not then for the fence grab? Like, would, would was one of them about to land in mount or was one of them about to land in the other person's guard? Because those are very different things. You know, you could say that they're both, okay, we're giving you the takedown and the top position, but if one is a really dominant position where you could potentially be on your way to end in the fight, and the other one is just the next step to trying to make something happen. And I, I don't exactly hate that idea. I also get, though, that the the impulse behind this is why it's so hard to get people to actually enforce the rules yeah. in this sport and actually get referees to do stuff like that because the referees don't want to be the deciding factor in the fight. They, they don't like that. They don't want to be put in that position where, okay, I took a point away and in a three round fight, that's a huge deal. You know, then that's how somebody goes from, you know, they would have won two rounds to one and now you know, they end up with a, a draw instead. And they, we don't want to see fights decided that way. We don't want to see just like one official's intervention be the thing that takes the outcome from one direction to another. The refs don't want to be put in that position. And so that, I think, is why, at its core, we ended up with this system of just warning people over and over again and never actually doing stuff. Yeah. And I think that that's what's behind that, is that we, we're averse to that. And we, we we got so averse to it. Now when we see it actually happen, we go, oh, well, that seems like too much. But it's like, we got to choose. Either we want to do something, either breaking the rules results in some kind of set, predictable consequence, or it doesn't. And I don't know. I mean, maybe if you make it a more automatic thing that you grab that fence to stop a takedown and you lose a point and you're not going to be able to grab it subtly that we're not going to see. It's pretty evident when it happens. Then maybe people actually get themselves to stop doing that. Yeah. And like you said, the thing where you put somebody on the ground 
on top in top position because the other person grabbed the fence is one of those things that sounds great on paper until you've got the referee out there in the middle of a fight being handed even more responsibility than they already have of having to be like, all right, uh, we'll put this on the ground. We're going to put you in guard. Maybe your leg will be over here. Put your hand over there and start. It seems like you could, you could affect the outcome of a fight even more potentially by taking your best shot at what everyone would look like once they got to the ground. Right. Well, remember when we used to do that in Pride where people would get all tangled up in the ropes yeah. and then the referee would have them pause and bring them back. And then it was always a thing of like, no, my hand was here. No, it wasn't. Everybody's trying to fight for the good position to, to restart from. It was a constant issue in those yeah. days. And it's still you still see it in jujitsu tournaments and stuff where people, if, if they have to get restarted and everybody's looking for exactly like jockeying for the, the best possible place to restart from. So you just end up dealing with that. And uh, I mean... Maybe it is still a better solution. I don't know. I, I'd be willing to consider that one. I'd I'd love to know what some referees would say about it. All right. We, we're almost out of time for listener mail here, but we got to get this one in from Ricky Badminton. What do you okay. think? Good to hear from Ricky. What do you think about Paulo Costa recently saying he drank too much wine the night before the Izzy fight? Is this the ultimate? I'm not making any excuses, but dot, dot, dot. Hey, man. At least Paulo Costa. I mean, you can call it an excuse, which it obviously is. But like, at least Paulo Costa is out here being honest with us. And in my in my view, a way that at least seems somewhat relatable of being like, I tried to drink away my nervousness the night before my fight with Israel Adesanya. Saying that he tried to black out, which probably maybe, maybe not the best approach. I don't know. Maybe not what I, would, uh, what I would advocate for if I was in that guy's corner or one of his coaches. But at the same time, hey, Paulo, I get it, man. I feel you, dog. First of all, Ricky Badman is going to be over here just stealing my Are You Fucking Kidding Me of the week. But, okay, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is who among us, like, if you are so smart that you can figure out exactly how much wine to drink the night before a world title <laughs> a fight, cage fight, then yeah. go by all means. You you must know what everybody should right. do. I mean, some people are saying, "Oh, I ate the tiramisu. I ate the uh, I mm-hmm. ate the uh, the beef tartare." At least this one with Paulo Costa trying to drink his way into oblivion. I was like, "Not a great idea, man." But uh, but yeah, I, I I understand. Two things about this. One, over the years in my studies, I have constructed uh, a hierarchy of hangovers, and. The one that you want maybe the least the night before a big sporting competition is a a wine hangover. You don't want to wake up with that one. There are better hangovers to have than than that, man, that just heavy, heavy heavy-headed wine hangover. No, you don't want it. Second of all, though, the way he described it and, like, his thinking... I could almost kind of get yeah, it, right? Because I've I've been there before, right? Where it's like, you know, you are having trouble sleeping. You take something like something kind of mild to help you sleep, and then you're laying there 45 minutes later, and you're going, "It's not working. Should I take another one? Should I take something else? I have a different kind of sleep aid." Wait, is this how they the coroner's autopsy report says that I had a bunch like a cocktail of drugs in my yeah. system when they found me? Is that is that how you end up there? You just start and you're you're trying to do the math in your head. Should I, what about if I take a little more? How about just a little more? How about, you know, and then the next thing you know, you have completely fucked it up. So I kind of get it. I also, though, kind of wonder, does Paulo not have some people in his camp he could talk to about? Like, he's there, he's there, you're there with coaches and stuff, right? Like, this is when 
we he needs the CME Venmo service yeah. where fighters can send, send us 40 bucks and be like, hey, so I'm fighting a fellow by the name of Izzy Adesanya tomorrow for the UFC middleweight Heard title. Having trouble sleeping. I was thinking I'd get a bottle of wine and then we could go, <clears throat> are you familiar with Tylenol PM? <laughs> How about some melatonin yeah. gummies, my guy? Paulo, I happen to have this bottle of melatonin gummies that I give my children. I think you should take mm-hmm. five of them probably be cold <laughs> yeah you know maybe sometimes you know you take the advil pm or whatever you wake up uh it's a little hard to get up in the morning good news for you though paulo is that you don't have to be anywhere until like 10 o'clock tomorrow night man the one thing you don't want to be for that is dealing with a wine hangover yeah. uh also in terms of using this as an excuse if your point is things could go differently the next time Maybe going with the what had happened was I got super drunk the night before excuse is not the, is not the best way to do it because that's not one where, where the powers that be are going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll give you another chance then. We'll go ahead and book the rematch since uh, checks notes, you got super drunk the night before the first one. <laughs> best foot forward, yeah, I Paulo. Mean, best foot forward. He saw those old pictures of like NFL players smoking cigarettes and drinking a beer at halftime of the Super Bowl. And was like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go classic with this one. <laughs> maybe, maybe the try a tried and true, a tried and true method, right there. Uh-huh. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says "email the podcast." That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Cyril Gaon remains undefeated, having emerged with a unanimous decision victory over the biggie boy Jarzino Rosenstrike in the main event of UFC Fight Night 186 on Saturday night, as always, from the Apex Arena down there in Las Vegas. Uh, I tweeted during the fight that I couldn't even figure out which kind of heavyweight fight this was, because it wasn't <laughs> as though that it was terrible. Yeah. And clearly, Cyril Gaon... At 6'6", 250 pounds, is a hell of an athlete. He's out there, light on his feet, shuffling back and forth between orthodox and southpaw, snapping that jab, rocking the biggie boy back. These guys exchanged a couple of of furious punching combinations a couple of times during this fight, but the end result of it wasn't necessarily that scintillating. It's not one we're going to be talking about from years years from now, years to, to come. But I guess it opens up a couple of different, at least in my opinion, interesting lines of inquiry here. Number one, what do we really want from heavyweights? And is our expectation different than our than our expectation would be for, say, Jimmy Rivera and Pedro Munoz? Uh, because you can lay out the philosophy that Cyril Gaon did the right thing here, right? That Cyril Gaon, who's undefeated, the most important thing for him to do this time around would be to beat the biggie boy in a smart way that doesn't take too many risks because the way that the landscape of the heavyweight division lays out at the moment, Cyril Gaon is going to have to fight once, maybe twice more before he is able to elect himself into something approaching top contender status. And by the time he does that, nobody's going to remember the Jarzino Rosenstrike fight. 
if he does something impressive in his next fight or something impressive in the fight after that, we're still going to look around and say, hey, Stipe Miocic versus Cyril Gaon, Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Gaon, John Jones versus Cyril Gaon, that's the fight to make. So it was actually pretty smart, I think, for, for Cyril Gaon to do this against the biggie boy in this instance. But did that violate some kind of unwritten social contract, Ben? And that what we want from the big fellas is for them to go out there, chuck strategy, chuck personal health, chuck the smart thing, and just have a fucking slobber knocker that is fun for us to watch at 930 at night on a Saturday. Is that what we want, really? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how he's trying to keep his undefeated record and put himself in a good position down the road for heavyweight title fight. Also, let's mention most of these guys are on show win contracts. So, right. When half your money depends on winning, then yeah, and you see, I'm cruising to a victory here. Why would I do anything else if I don't have to? I totally get it. I think part of the problem is that, yes, maybe we do expect something out of a heavyweight main event where there are very few instances where you're going to tell me a heavyweight main event went to a decision and I'm going to think that that is a good thing. If you're... If you're using the primer machine to come like 12 hours back in time, you're like, look, I can tell you, I I don't want to ruin it for you, but tonight's heavyweight main event in the UFC ends in a decision. I'll be like, there's one very narrow way that that's a good kind of fight. And we don't see those very often. Yeah. Otherwise, inside of five rounds, we expect the big fellows to get rid of each other. Also, I think part of the problem is that Early on in this fight, especially by round two or three, it looked like Cyril Ghosn could do anything he wanted. Yeah. And when you were in a fight like that, and it looks like you're in total control, this other guy can't really touch you, can't stop what you're you're bringing, I think it's sort of natural that people are going to go, okay, so go on then, get him out of here. Finish this. Why establish this dominance and then not put your foot on the gas pedal a little more and see if you can't get rid of him? And instead, it looked like, okay... I'm doing this. I'm touching him whenever I want to from the outside. I'll threaten him with a takedown attempt if he ever takes a forward step. He's not going to be able to do much about it, and I'm totally safe. And people don't necessarily, especially when they're watching a heavyweight main event, aren't necessarily there to watch you be totally safe. They want to see somebody putting the the risk. But at the same time, you look at Jarzinho Rosenstrike's past fights, and you go, this is a guy who is kind of waiting for the opportunity when he can be losing right up until he wins. We've yeah. seen it in other heavyweight fights pretty recently, where you, one punch is all it takes. Nobody in this division needs any reminders of that. And so if Cyril Gaon had gone messing around trying to get the biggie boy out of there and had run right into a big punch that broke his whole shit, just like... Rosenstrike did Dallas Droverim, got himself knocked out. There would not have been a lot of sympathy online. People wouldn't have been like, well, hey, man, he was trying to give us the exciting fight that we wanted. He knew we expected a finish, and he went out there going to get it. People would have been like, you dumb. You had it, and you screwed it up. You walked right into a punch. You got yourself knocked out. LOL, bro. Like, That's what would have happened. And so I can't blame the guy. The person I blame is – it's hard for me to think what was – going through Jarzino Rosenstrike's head because he had to know by the time you're in the the fourth, fifth round, you're losing this fight. And it seemed like he, like maybe he just got too into believing that, okay, sooner or later that one punch is going to land. He's going to walk right, right where I want him and I'm going to be able to nail him. And it's going to be the Alistair Overeem fight all over again. Or if it was just that, you know, this guy 
is hurting me from the outside and I don't see a way in without just being dumb and charging in and I'm all out of ideas and maybe I'm just content to lose this one standing up. Yeah. With Cyril gone, at times it's almost like the Holly Holm effect where you see him out there and especially in this fight where he looked just massive as compared to another extremely large human in Jarzino Rosenstrike. Uh, you see Cyril gone out there, he's, he's hulking, he's athletic, he's clearly got the talent and the skills and it seems like, man, he should be doing more. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know that that's necessarily fair to look at him and think that, especially I'm sure it's a whole different ballgame when you've actually got the biggie boy trying to take your head off every time you try to do stuff. But at the same time, like, it's not his fault, but he just looks so damn impressive just to the to the eye that uh, it's almost like you want you have higher expectations for him, like you want him to be doing more out there. Uh, have you seen anything from Cyril gone that, that makes you think he might be a problem for the elite people in this division? Because I watched this Rosenstrike fight, and not only is it not totally scintillating, but it's sort of like, ah, I mean, gone is kind of, he's kind of picking his spots from the outside, kind of chewing around the edges here. And then when there does get to be an exchange, his takedowns that he's clearly using to stop Rosenstrike's momentum also not incredibly impressive. I think he was like one for 11 or one for 12, something like that on takedown attempts. So it's like, not only is he not doing a ton, but when I watch it, I'm like, he's an impressive athlete, but I don't necessarily feel like the elite of the heavyweight division need to be quaking in their shoes. here. Yeah. Well, and even when he was looking for takedowns, it seems like he's going to succeed on the basis of power and athleticism rather than on great technique on those. So I, I agree with you. I think the, the thing that I started to think as I was watching him is I was like, man, if you can get him to just throw more of those jabs or or just to, to put something behind the jab, because he's reaching out and just uh, that cobra strike of a jab, he's reaching out and touching Jairzino Rosen strike whenever he wants to. And he could be doing more with that. Like, yeah. How about how about you throw two, three jabs in a row? How about that? Something, you know, like just little minor tweaks you could add to that guy's game and could make him a lot more dangerous. The thing that I was thinking, though, by the end of the fight was... Is the state of heavyweight such that you beat a guy like Jersey and her Rosenstrike, and now you're in suddenly deeper waters? And that maybe if he had a little more time to develop, he'd be ready for it. But is he going to end up, are they going to look around and go, all right, well, how about you and Derek Lewis next? Well, heavyweight needs to do something while we're waiting for these guys to finish the, this kind of triumvirate of title contenders. Everybody kind of hanging around right there. Uh, are you? Do you get in a situation as Cyril Gunn where you get thrown in there against somebody that you, you might be able to put together a, a a strategy to beat with a little more seasoning? But if you get in there before you're ready and you get knocked out, there's the margin for error so small. Yeah. Can you imagine being Parisian MMA coach Fernand Lopez, who on two separate occasions has had Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gunn walk into his gym? And be like, hello, I would like to learn to be a professional fighter. That's, how does that happen, man? Those two guys, those are the guys you get coming in off the streets? Makes me feel a little bit scared to go to Paris, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. <laughs> Is it just like those guys just walk on the streets everywhere you look? There's a Cyril Gone type hanging around? I think you could probably go to Paris and be okay. What you don't want to do is go to Paris, roll up in Fernand Lopez's gym and be like, I want to fight the toughest son bitch you have. <laughs> get him right yeah, here. No. Not everybody can stroll into a professional fight gym and be like, hey, I'm hoping to be the uh, heavyweight boxing champion. Uh, was wondering if there was someone around here who could train me. 
you pretty much have to have the uh, the Engano or Gone look there to make that work for you. I think also, Chad, that maybe if if you were to roll up in there and be like, or if I were to roll up in there and be like, I would like you to train me to be a world champion. I think maybe you don't get offered the cot in the back of the gym. Yeah. I think maybe yeah. you have to make your own accommodations. In that maybe event. if we wandered in there sitting on each other's shoulders wearing a trench coat, then we might we might have a little bit more success. And why wouldn't we do that, honestly? Just, <laughs> Just a couple of grown men inside a trench coat. Yeah. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then, uh, then we'll get on to round number two here. Ben, have you seen this video of Kamaru Usman uh, confronting his fear of snakes? I have not. Okay, so the so the welterweight champion of the world, the feared Kamaru Usman, is apparently a little bit. In his own words, he's not afraid, but he is afraid of snakes. Okay. All right. So so there's actually a pretty entertaining video out right now. He goes to one of these. Uh, it appears to be some manner of roadside zoo. There's a guy there by calling himself the real Tarzan, who's okay. going to take Kamaru Usman around, show him the show him the animals. Long story short, Kamaru Usman ends up holding like a goddamn eight-foot python. So first of all, you fucking kidding me? Congratulations to Kamaru Usman for confronting his fear of snakes by holding an eight-foot python. Would not necessarily be the route that I would choose. Mm -hmm. But my second, are you fucking kidding me? Have we not seen Tiger King? As I thought at this point, everyone would have seen Tiger King. We would know the... The story on the on the roadside zoo, but apparently we're still that's still a thing. People are still they got tigers and snapping turtles and stuff right there by the highway in a in a cage. We're still doing that. You yes. fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Okay. So so is he over it now? I don't. I mean, it, he holds a huge snake as well as a snapping turtle. So you'd think, Lukmaro Usman, he's crossing off. Uh, crossing things off the fears list he's becoming more dangerous all the time he's becoming you know more impervious he's I not mean, gonna if, have to drink a bottle of wine before his next title defense because he's he's almost all out of fears if this were 90s era pro wrestling him overcoming his his fear of snakes would actually be a great asset because it would be like yeah. well there goes jake the snake's best weapon that, that was really all he was playing on was that he was going to bring a giant snake into the colby covington looks bag. down looks down the stairs at his basement full of snakes and he's like, God damn it. Yeah. Now he's got to pivot, pivot to spiders. Yeah. He's That's on the phone got. calling people. Hey man, you want a snake? <laughs> Trying to get rid of these snakes over here. Well, Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? Man, Kevin Kroom almost had himself a moment. He did. I mean, he did have a moment. Let's he did. be honest. Prior to the bell is when he had the moment. And yeah, my, my, are you fucking kidding me here? It's not even really a criticism of Kevin Kroon because I was into what he was doing. As we got a email here that we did not find the time to read, but uh, Mr. Shikadance pointed out, and this is a reference that all true Montanans will get, that it looked like Kevin Kroon had spent all his birthday money at the 50000 silver dollar bar yeah. where they sell all manner of fun novelty weaponry. He shows up. With nunchucks. Yeah, that's where I got my nunchucks. 50,000 silver dollar bar. He shows up with a butterfly knife. He's doing the butterfly knife at the at the stare down, but hasn't quite mastered it yet. You can tell. Goes on a rant about Nevada's marijuana policies and how is it that uh, you can engage the services of a sex worker, but then get in trouble 
for smoking marijuana a few days before the fight. Oh, it's all going pretty well, but man, when you're when you're right on the verge of a moment like that, you kind of got to win the fight. Instead, he goes out here, just spends three rounds absolutely committing to the takedown against Alex Caceres. Doesn't really work out for him. He loses. So I'm still interested. I'm going to say that. I'm still, you show up with nunchucks and a butterfly knife yelling about marijuana and hookers. I'm, you got my attention. Yes, I'm going to right. be watching to see where it goes from here. All I'm saying is let's refine some things, you know? Maybe let's let's work on our butterfly knife skills. Maybe let's even choose a novelty weapon instead of like being a little bit all over the place. Let's either be a butterfly knife guy or a nunchuck guy, and then let's win the damn fight. If I'm kidding me, you fucking kidding me. Now, was it an actual butterfly knife? Because I saw Kevin Kroom referred to it on his Twitter later as his comb, which leads me to believe that maybe it was one of those butterfly knife comb things. Okay. Which, I'm not I'll be honest. I'm almost. I'm almost more into it. Yeah. If it was a comb. No. If it is. If it is a comb, that is somehow way cooler to me. And yeah. also, how do I get one? I don't even comb yeah. my hair, but I might start. I would love to think that they wouldn't let you roll up to the stare down with an actual knife, right? <laughs> like nunchucks. Okay. All right. We see you're working a gimmick. Knife. I start to have questions. I start to ask questions about the utility of you bringing that up for the stare down. But not the nunchucks? I mean... Totally into it. In the hands of a master, Chad, the nunchaku are a dangerous weapon. Yeah, right. But you've also got Dana White up there, who clearly has multiple pairs in his own weapons room at home. Uh, he'll step in if there's a problem. Yeah. He's probably got he's probably got eight, nine pairs of those on his person at any mm-hmm. at any one time. Got a, got a broadsword he's just waiting to pull out. That emailer also referred to Kevin Kroom as a CME creative fighter, which... <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. That's about right. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad... After all the talk, after all the suicide ropes, after all the hitting the weights and getting our big boy bodies together, we're finally doing the damn thing for the UFC light heavyweight title. A title fight that, lo and behold, we're finally maybe getting used to an era where we can have one of these and it doesn't include John Jones or Daniel Cormier. Like this time, middleweight champion Israel Asanya going up in weight to face the legendary Polish power of Yanni Blackjacks. And Jed, I'm looking at the odds right now. Israel Adesanya, the smaller man, at least in theory, coming up from middleweight, is rolling into this at about a two and a half to one favorite. I ask you this. Are we all doing the thing again where we act like Jan Blahovich is just lucky to be having a cup of coffee with the UFC belt? He doesn't really belong here. He's not really wowing us the same way somebody like Israel Adesanya is. It's the same way we treated him, frankly, headed into that Dominic Reyes fight for the vacant title. And is Yanni Blackjacks about ready to shock the world again? It seems to be his role, doesn't it? That he's going to be the guy we overlook. And uh, also the guy who kind of keeps getting himself 
shuffled into these matchups where he's not the the favorite and maybe from a matchmaking perspective maybe you, you don't necessarily plan on him winning i think it's dangerous to think about the legendary polish power that way though ben i mean you got the guy rolls in here eight and one in his last nine he's on a four fight winning streak he got knocked out by tiago santos tko back in february of 2019 but other than that he's beaten a pretty impressive string of fighters here, including Jared Cannonier, J- Jimmy Manoa, Nikita Krilov, Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, Corey Anderson, and most recently Dominic Reyes. So if you're going to underestimate the man with the suicide rope, you do so at your own peril mm-hmm. is all I would say. And man, if you, I, I'm not saying he's, he's going to win because frankly, I have no idea who's going to win this fight. Uh, but if you get Yanni Blackjack at that underdog money and you got $20, you never want to see again. I'm not going to argue with you if you want to if you want to take a flyer. He could he could certainly win this. Yeah. Yeah, and I also wonder because when you look at what Israel Adesanya can do well, he's great at managing at distance and he's such a creative, clever striker. People have had a real hard time with just kind of solving the problem of how do you get in there and touch the guy. And it's, he's still going to have uh, like a height and probably reach advantage against Jan Blachowicz. I mean, I think Israel Adesanya listed at about 6'4". Uh, Yanni Blackjack's listed at about 6'2". But when you look at who Adesanya has been fighting at middleweight, it's a bunch of guys who are, you know, 5'10", 5'11", 6 feet. And they all have real problems with the distance. And that's a thing that he has come to depend on. It seems like against Jan Blachowicz, the distance becomes less of a factor and maybe speed becomes more of a factor. Israel Adesanya seems like that's where he's got Jan Blachowicz, definitely. And yet, it's always interesting to me that sometimes we roll into these fights where one guy's coming up from a different weight class and one punch connects and we suddenly are reminded, oh yeah, we have these weight classes for a reason. We've seen that over and right. over again. We saw it happen yeah. to Max Holloway when he went up to lightweight to face Dustin Poirier and his usual Max Holloway stuff just didn't work the same way in weight class up. Uh, we've seen it happen to other people, you know, especially like light heavyweights who have gone up to heavyweight and realized, like, oh wait, I thought I was going to come up here and my athleticism would really wow these slow big fellas. And then I found out that the power is a real thing. So it does make, like, that's one of the things that makes this such an interesting fight is trying to figure out exactly how all those factors are going to play. I also, though, wonder, either way it goes, we're dealing with a tricky situation for one of the two titles. Because if Israel Adesanya wins, now he's technically the middleweight champ and the light heavyweight champ. It, we know that so far only one person's been able to defend two titles at the same time, and it's Amanda Nunes who has help of one division being kind of barely functional. Right. Although she's still credit to her for doing it. You know, she'll still go back and forth and it doesn't get enough credit, frankly. But you either probably have to decide, do you want to go back down to middleweight or do you want to stay at light heavyweight? And if you stay at light heavyweight, doesn't a lot of the glitz and glamour go off if, okay, now Israel Adesanya is a light heavyweight champion and up next is Glover Teixeira? Yeah. I mean, it's already sort of an... uh a hurtful situation for Glover Teixeira uh, to to be jumped in line by the by the middleweight champion who's coming up to to fight Yanni Blackjacks and and clearly there's a matchup consideration to be made here right shades of Randy Couture coming out of retirement to to fight uh, Tim Sylvia at heavyweight because he thinks he can beat him yeah and I think now that Jan Blahovich is the light heavyweight champion 
maybe things look a little bit greener. The pastures at light heavyweight look a little bit greener than maybe they would have previously, or at least you see a matchup that you think might be advantageous. But at the same time, I feel like we got to give Israel Adesanya a ton of credit here for doing the thing that it seems like we are constantly asking these big stars to do, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov undefeated. You know, there's it's it's ridiculous to even think he would move up, right, to, to try to fight Kamaru Usman or George St. Pierre or anybody else. Uh, George St. Pierre, when he was the champion, we were like, how about you fight Anderson Silva at 185 pounds? And he's sort of like, eh, not really interested. Here you got Israel Adesanya in the bloom of his star-making turn for the UFC, a guy that is easy to look at from the outside in and think, this guy's the, the next big star for the UFC. Maybe not quite at Conor McGregor levels, but a guy who could be a real good drawing card for the UFC. And he's taking a hell of a chance here. At 20 and 0, moving up to, to 205 pounds to fight Jan Blahovich in a matchup that we have no idea how it's going to go. So, first of all, all due respect to the middleweight champ for taking this risk because not everyone does it. Uh, second of all, you are absolutely right. Like, there's a ton of, of extenuating circumstances here, and uh, we don't know how it's going to go against a bigger opponent. He will technically, according to Wikipedia, have a two inch reach advantage over Blahovich, but. Uh, size and strength may well be on the side of the legendary Polish power in this one. And if Adesanya d d pulls it off and, and and does the damn thing and becomes the champ champ, the middleweight and light heavyweight champion, uh, would he even consider trying to, to defend both? Would the UFC give him that op opportunity? Is it even possible for him to go back and forth between 205 and 185? And which, which title seems more advantageous for him to hold on to if he can't do both at the same time. Now, that said, as we've talked about before, there's also a, a, an additional elephant in the room here, John's Bones Jones, who's who's posting training videos over the weekend, or Brandon Gibson posting some training videos over the weekend of, of doing some, hitting some pads with John Jones, where that, that dude is looking large and in charge. He is looking 250 pounds uh, still looking like it's a little bit of an upper body business, though. Not not sure that the uh, that the chicken legs, as John Jones refers to them himself, have put on a ton of that mass. But like he looks like a heavyweight. If Israel Adesanya, who he has had words with in the past, becomes the champion, does John Jones suddenly abandon that heavyweight plan and go back to light heavyweight for a potential big money fight with with Izzy? Does he hold on to the idea that he's going to fight? The Nganu Miocic winner, despite the fact that to his own telling, that still seems somewhat theoretical. It doesn't sound like he and the UFC have settled on a deal for it. So uh, it it would be tossing an awful big rock in the pond if Israel Adesanya wins the light heavyweight championship this weekend. And, and what the ripple effect ultimately turns out to be, I could not tell you. Yeah. But I'm interested to find out. Yeah. Me too. And you know the UFC likes the idea of a John Jones versus Israel Adesanya fight at some point down the road. You just kind of wonder, is this going to be one of those fights that we keep talking about forever and maybe finally put together four years past its expiration date? I could see that. Yeah. I could see yeah, that absolutely. being a thing that happens. Um, yeah. But you're right. I mean, the interesting thing about this instance of moving up in weight is you're talking about 20 pounds. The, the difference between those weight classes is bigger than it is anywhere else, essentially. Like... We the whole reason we've made the case for the one six five is to help put a little bit more like regular stop gaps between so we're not going from fifteen pound jump from one seventy to one eighty five but then from one eighty five to two o five that's the biggest jump there is it's a big it's a bigger deal than going up ten pounds in weight 
And yeah. I, I got to think that if you're sort of remaking your body for both those guys, Israel Adesanya going to light heavyweight and John Jones going to heavyweight, it's probably a lot tougher to undo that. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I don't know how Israel Adesanya has approached this. I, I, I think he's just planning on not cutting much weight. Right. And rolling in kind of at his walk around weight, which I would assume would be up around 200, 205 pounds. Uh, I don't maybe he's packing on an, a bunch of an additional mass to go out and try to fight Jan Blahovich, But I, I don't know. I would be kind of surprised if that were the case. I like, saw him lifting some weights. I saw a picture of him lifting some weights. Maybe maybe, uh, you know, pandemic, you get a Bowflex in your house. And the next thing you know, mm-hmm. you're feeling like a light heavyweight. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's he definitely knows where they keep the weights. Uh, I don't know. I have a hard time picturing Israel Adesanya making a full-on career home at 205 pounds though not not only because like bigger dudes are up there but also like in the absence of John Jones and again we don't even know if he can come back to 205 right now but like maybe the more lucrative matchups are actually at middleweight if it is like Glover Tashira, Dominic Reyes and Tiago Santos are what await you at light heavyweight those seem like some big risks to take for potentially not an enormous payout yeah Yeah, that's true. All right, that's going to wrap it up here for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, as we have mentioned... Two other titles on the line here this weekend at UFC uh, 259. Let's go ahead and talk first about the men's bantamweight title fight here between Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. Yan just getting his legs under him here as as bantamweight champ. He beat Jose Aldo for the vacant title back in July of last year, so he's been champion for a little bit less than a year here. Aljamain Sterling has been in the hunt and frankly asking, begging, demanding a title shot for some time now. Uh, He is on a five fight win streak most recently over Corey Sandhagen at UFC 250 last June, a victory that perhaps looks even more impressive now just uh, from what Corey Sandhagen has done in the wake of that with his knockouts of Marlon Moraes and and Frankie Edgar, the strength of schedule there for uh, Aljamain Sterling uh, went through the roof. Uh, knowing that the, he has waited for this opportunity for so long, and there's going to be so much on the line here, both emotionally, physically, financially, for Aljamain Sterling, who do you like here in this in this fight that that is in some ways a a classic grappler versus striker affair between a guy in Aljamain Sterling that has been around for a long time, and a guy in Peter Yan who seems like he is a developing star for the UFC, but is just sort of in his infancy, both as champion and like a potential pay per view draw. Yeah, it's a tough one to pick because if you hear Aljamain Sterling talk about it, I talked to Aljamain Sterling last week and he's basically he's like, hey, I need one takedown. If I get this guy to the mat one time, I think I finish him there and I don't think he's able to get back up on his own. And But then when you see what Peter Jan is able to do, especially over the course of several rounds, if you have to stand there and work with that guy, he will chop you down. Like he He's got that explosive, quick striking where he can just throw out one blistering combo and hurt you, but he can also wear away at you. And we can see people sort of wilting under that. If you can't get that guy down, maybe you're in a world of hurt. Or if you can't keep that guy down. 
Uh, one interesting thing that I was talking to Aljamain Sterling about was, you know, he got the pile of trash neck. I don't know if you knew that about Aljamain Sterling. He's like 31. He's got the pile of trash neck. He's got some friends in camp who, like Chris Weidman and stuff, who have been through it before. And so he kind of knows what the options are there. But it also is like a definite thing he has to manage. And it seems like the kind of thing that puts it in his mind. Like, look, you got to make this stuff count because who knows how long you got in this game. When you start to see those signs of like your body feeling the effects of what you've put it through. If if you're dealing with that at 31, I can tell you from experience, it's probably not going to get much better by 35. And this is, this is the bite of the apple that Aljamain Sterling's been waiting for. He's got to make it count here. And yet also it seems like I got the impression talking to him, like he's really trying hard not to let the pressure of that idea get into his head. Sure. To try to treat it like any other fight. And yet it's not any other fight. Like this is the one. If it's going to happen yeah. for him, it's got to happen here because you look at how difficult it was just for him to make this case and actually get it. And it seemed like several points along the way, is he going to get screwed out of it? Uh, is it actually, is he going to get what he's actually earned? If you don't win it here, it's hard to imagine being around long enough to work your way back up for another shot. Yeah. And if you can't work your game plan against Peter Yawn, as you said, it turns out to be a painful experience for you because he's just going to keep whittling you away. Uh, typically over the course of several rounds until you either wilt or, or he wins a unanimous decision over you. Uh, it, it's in uh, Peter Yan, like uh, on his side of the ledger, as I said, he seems like he is a developing potential star for the UFC. Uh, his path to the title, however, may be a little bit lackluster just in terms of level of competition. And obviously that's not Peter Yan's fault. He doesn't necessarily pick who he's going to fight. He's, you know, he's, he's got a, uh, fight the people that are available. Jose Aldo for the for the vacant title was kind of a weird one at UFC 251. His fight before that against Uriah Faber at UFC 245 was a little bit of a weird matchup. And uh, previous to that, his UFC wins were Jimmy Rivera, John Dodson, Douglas De Silva, uh, Andrade, and then Jin Su Sun and Toronto, uh, uh, Toronto Ishihara. So, uh, you know, the the men's bantamweight division is is one of the most stacked division in all divisions in all of mixed martial arts. And yet, if you were going to, you know, uh, criticize Peter Yan anywhere, maybe it's a level of, of competition issue. And then you're going to you're going to have Aljamain Sterling coming in there who's who's been fighting all of the best guys in this division for a long ass time. So I don't know. It's a, it's going to be an interesting fight, not only stylistic, but also it's sort of like a measuring stick kind of way uh for Peter Yan to get the opportunity to prove to us that that he is who we thought he was, or that he really is a guy who's going to be able to have this title in this Shark Tank division for a long period of time. Yeah, but that's one of the things that makes this fight so compelling to me, is it's the true champion versus number one contender kind of fight, and coming right at the the peak of their powers for both of those yeah. guys. And so... Yeah. It, that that ought to be the situation that you hope for in any title fight in any division. It's not always the situation. Uh, it's especially the case here where you've got a kind of a new champion who we're still waiting to see him really cement his place there. And then you got the guy who is unquestionably the top contender. And, you know, ne- neither one of them is over the hill yet. They're really going to do it. And uh, that, that to me, this is the most, like, I know it's a title fight, but it's like the most under the radar big fight that I'm looking forward to on this card. Let's talk about the other title fight here quickly. The women's featherweight crown on the line here. Uh, long time 
two division champion now uh, Amanda Nunes going to make her second defense of the women's featherweight title against Megan Anderson actually her second consecutive defense of the featherweight championship she defeated Felicia Spencer last June at UFC 250 which is kind of interesting in and of itself like we fully expect the women's bantamweight championship to be the uh, the one that gets the most action, frankly, the one that has the most contenders, the one where there are more developing storylines and just more fighters. So interesting to see Nunez here make two 145-pound appearances right in a row. And against Megan Anderson, a person who obviously came over uh, from Invicta FC several years ago to some uh, fanfare, she, expectations were relatively high that Megan Anderson would be able to become a player in this division. She lost immediately to Holly Holm at UFC 225, but since then has gone three and one with the loss to Felicia Spencer in May of 2019. She rolls into this title fight on the virtue of two wins over people who do not have Wikipedia pages in uh, Norma Dumont Viana and Sarah Fern Dos Santos, uh, but she is here nonetheless. And and you know uh, Megan Anderson a serious contender at 145 pounds by any, by any measure. But we just get sort of used to Amanda Nunes in this sport, chewing people up and uh, emerging with the belt. I don't necessarily know that anybody expects a different outcome this weekend. Looking at the odds right now, Amanda Nunes is going off most places at around a 12 to one favorite. Ooh, that's long. By far the biggest favorite on the card. You can also find her. Some places have her as high as 14 to one. Holy cow. Now, if I told you on the flip side, you could get eight to one underdog odds on Megan Anderson. Do you have twenty bucks you never want to see again, Chad Dundas? Can you talk oh, yourself on... into it? Can you it can you visualize it in your mind, brain, some way that she wins this fight? It depends on how daring you're feeling, right? I would probably rather take that money and put it on Yanni Blackjacks if I was going to take an underdog bet. Uh, it's tough, man. It's tough to plot out a path to victory here for Megan Anderson against a person in Amanda Nunes who might well be the best pound for pound fighter in the world, uh, just in mixed martial arts in general, men and women. Uh, and unless Amanda Nunes shows up looking like a different person, looking like, uh, uh, you know, something has gone wrong somewhere that we didn't know about previously, whether it be in the training room or, or in her approach or, uh, you know, some other factors starting to catch up with her. I don't know, man. Tough to tough to plot a course here for for Megan Anderson, a person that we've already expected a lot from and and has let down at least twice so far in her UFC career. How about this? I'm just throwing out ways to help you picture it. Amanda Nunes, as we know, a new parent. Yeah, and that will slow you down. Has a young baby. I know you probably dimly remember what it was like. I do too, having a new baby in the house. I'll tell you what. I did not feel capable of rolling up in there and winning a UFC title or defending a UFC title. I just didn't. Yeah, that's the, yeah your that's UFC just title reign. You could make the case Ben Folks' UFC title reign was short-circuited by all those kids he done had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird how uh, biology works and the way that it kind of feels like your body makes you forget what it's like to have those young babies, assumedly so you decide it's okay to have more. Uh and then when you have one, you're like, oh, yeah, this is really hard for anywhere from between two weeks to like three years. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a definite thing that you got to deal with. But at the same time, you know, Amanda Nunes in a couple where you got two professional fighters uh, in the house. So you'd think like they, if anyone's going to be uh, 
sympathetic to the to the needs of the job, you'd think it would be it would be those two. And I I wouldn't bet on Amanda Nunes showing up looking ill prepared. Yeah, let's just say that you're probably right. Although I'll tell you what, if she rolls up in there and her her champions Reebok kit shows signs that a baby has thrown up on her recently. Yeah, if she's got parent shoulder. Yeah, the odds are going to go crazy. That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't uh have that be your only barometer. She, for who's going to win this fight, but she, just, you know, good looking out. She walks out there just dark puffy circles under the eyes. You know, the the hair all frazzled. She's yeah, she's in a pair of fuzzy slippers. <laughs> Doing that just zombie forward walk, then you're gonna. Yeah. Next thing you know, you look up. Megan Anderson has rocketed to a three to one favorite. Yeah, she forgot she had the TV remote control in her hand. (laughs) Uh, All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, here we go into another UFC pay per view. This one looks like it's going to be a big one. Three title fights, as we mentioned. Seems like interest is going to be high. What do you say the chances are that Dana White has another streamer he's targeting <laughs> outside their house? Listen to the phone calls. Wait, are you saying what do I think the chances are he's targeting another streamer or what do I think the chances are he says he's targeting another streamer? The second one. 100%. I'm glad you said that because I'm just saying Ben Folks has been down the rabbit hole on the whole illegal streaming world, what people are trying to do about it. Look for a story coming this week to The Athletic. Uh, it's It's been a ride, man. I'm going to tell you that. Learned a whole lot about the world of illegal streaming that, that I did not know before. Did so, you at any point go undercover and like, you know, hit the streets to, to go to an illegal streaming club? I, in the virtual sense, yes. <laughs> awesome. Yes, I did. Uh you you can watch absolutely anything out there on the internet, Chad. Did you know that? Want to watch a, like a soccer game from Poland or some shit like right now? It's it's all out there. It's not even really that hard to find. Um, also, talk to a lot of people, uh, many of them co-maniacs, who told me about their experiences on the the high seas of online piracy. Uh, it's it's been an education. I'm just saying. Sounds like one. Yeah. So you're just saying stuff was a a corporate crossover advertisement for your story that's coming out? That is Is correct. Yes. I'm just saying that's bullshit. Uh, (laughs) But I'm going to lift your spirits right now, Ben, because I'm just saying, you know, we got three titles on the line this weekend at UFC 259. But I know that there's a fight also on this card that is going to be of... Uh, extensive interest both to yourself and to all the little comaniacs out there. And that is Islam Makachev mm-hmm. trying to get himself back in the cage against crush object slash heartthrob slash president of the West side. Cool guy club drew Dober. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the, that's the non-title main right there. I'm just saying that's the people's main event. If I can do some gimmick infringement from our guy, Ariel Helwani. Yeah. I mean, look, if this were, uh, a handsomeness contest. Mm-hmm. Islam Akjev's in a world of hurt. <laughs> Let's just say it. Drew Dober, a pretty, pretty man. Islam Makachev, uh, if you want to go over there and look at his Wikipedia photo, he's got one that looks an awful lot like a mugshot. Yeah, it's a little blurry. 
And it's also, like, it makes him look like he's got the, the Dagestani beard and the Dagestani hairline. It looks like his face is being slowly conquered by hair from all sides. Like, his his face has been enveloped by hair, and it'll only be a matter of time until his entire visage is nothing but stubbly hair. Well, some of meanwhile, us wish we had those problems. Meanwhile, Drew Dober is going to be out there on the gram in yeah. like with his shirt unbu- unbuttoned all the way, holding a cocktail in a pair of pants two sizes too small, looking like uh, he's trying to sell you cologne or something. Yeah, he's rolling into this thing straight from a, a Teen Vogue cover shoot. Mm-hmm. So just, just saying, looks wise, it's a mismatch. You love to see it. You love to see it. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for checking us out. Remember over at uh, patreon.com slash co-main event. We will be there all week. Wednesday live chat, Friday power hour. Don't forget on Thursday, monster movie club featuring the thing. I got to get a new monster movie club voice. Well, that's just, you got all month to think about movie it. Club. Well, that's uh, an improvement. Not, yeah. Not too bad. Yeah. As for right now though, we're done. We're through. We're out. It's a little, it's a little Dracula, you know. Yeah. Well, he's a monster, wasn't he? It's kind of, it's kind of insensitive. Your okay. <laughs> definition of monster? He was doing the best he could, you know. That's true. With the hand he was dealt, and really, honestly, has played it longer than you think he might. Dracula, a lot of staying power in terms of the level of interest that he commands in the world of the monsters. The thing that you have to respect about Dracula is he might just fuck around and turn into a bat. And just like, okay, you know what? That's guys, now you just got a lot tougher to deal with. You're already an immortal blood-sucking vampire, but you could also just be a bat whenever you want. Shit, man. You know what that is? That's monstrous right there. It is monstrous.